This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Monday the 6th of March and with me today I have Ian Strafford-Taylor. Ian is CEO of AIM Listed Equals Group. After university, Ian trained as an accountant to then jump ship to investment banking. Seven years at Morgan Stanley and 13 years at UBS followed, leaving UBS as global head of a securities lending, repo and stock loan. Ian then joined fintech startup Fairfax as chief operating officer in 2006 and has been CEO of the now renamed Equals since 2012. Ian, welcome. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. What first attracted you to joining the investment banking world? Sounded a bit like Mrs. Merton then, didn't you? What <laughs> first attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels? Um, actually, if you go right back, and I don't sound very interesting, do I? I left university to become an accountant. I actually wanted to be a chemical engineer. Um, my mother and father said there's no money in that. Be an accountant. People always need accountants. So that's really why I studied accountancy. And then from Arthur Anderson, where I trained, mm-hmm. I was one of the. I wasn't on the Enron audit, in case you're wondering. Um, I my previous audit senior had left to go to Morgan Stanley, so I joined Morgan Stanley in the accounting area, as it were, and worked my way up there, and then eventually saw how much money all the traders were making and became a uh, Japanese equity salesman. On the day the Nikkei hit, almost forty thousand never went up. Again. Exactly right. So. Yeah bad timing and I think that one of the lessons I've learned over the years is you can only control what you can control right there's stuff outside your control and you have to go with it um, and the firm valued me but didn't quite know what to do with me because I clearly wasn't a salesman and I ended up in the securities lending area that needed a bit of um, remediation if, if you will and securities lending which is basically lending stock hedge funds and yep. people that want a short stock was sort of just coming out of its shell internationally at that time. In fact, in the UK, you could only get short if you were a market maker or contracts for differences in those days. Um, so I kind of stumbled into investment banking, if you will, mm-hmm. um, by accident, not design. So I wasn't attracted to it per se, but ended up in it. And it was pretty good to me over the years. I mean, 13 years at UBS is a long stint for anyone, really. Yeah, um, great company. Um, I saw a lot there. Um, good and bad, you know, um, in 1999, all scared about Y2K, the business basically got taken over by SBC, mm-hmm. as it was, or Swiss Banking Corporation, as it was at the time. And so, you know, I've been through mergers and disruption and crashes and all these sort of things make you, um, dare I say, older than wiser. And we'll come on to, to fair effects and equals, but do you miss those trading floor days? Um, somewhat. Um Investment banks, especially then, you know, maybe still now, you know, they 
they hired the smarter, so you were working with very smart people, um, which was a plus. The hours were maybe a negative. You know, they, they do get their pound of flesh out of you, as they should for what they're paying you. Um, a lot of politics, so I don't miss that. Mm -hmm. um, part of the allure of setting up something small was to avoid all of that and have a bit more of a flat structure if you can. Um, so yes and no, I think, is the honest answer. So then how did Fairfax, as it was, how did that come, how did it come into your radar and how did it evolve? Well, the same audit senior who hired me into Morgan Stanley was working on a, a thing. Peer-to-peer um, -peer FX was, was the original concept and Fairfax, as a name, back then, it's interesting you call it a, a fintech startup i guess it was right yeah. but we're talking yeah. 2006 7 where really disruptive tech was having a website right you know um it's funny to think of it there weren't even apps then yeah um so that same audit senior was working with someone to try and look at doing peer-to-peer -peer fx and i'm not talking about travel money i'm talking about the sort of um larger transaction let's say someone changing a million euros into pounds and someone wants to do the same inverse transaction at the same moment in time so it's a corporate business in other words yeah, yeah. and netting yeah um so it was named for fx because betfair was a thing back then yes. um and peer-to-peer -peer betting peer-to-peer -peer fx the concept doesn't really work unless you've got massive amounts of liquidity and massive amounts of volume to net the transactions off um, so again, by accident rather than design, we stumbled into, okay, within FX, where there's a big market, bad practices, no tech, and that was travel money at that time. Um, and from there, we went to the prepay card. And this was pre-revolution, yeah. if you will. Yeah. So um, you have to think back to where we were at that moment in time. And then, obviously, it evolves into into equals group which is a multifaceted platform now i mean did it evolve it didn't evolve so much as i'll take a bit of credit here you know i saw what was coming i mean we were growing by offering travel money type products to retail customers and then if they needed to move a decent chunk of money to buy a villa abroad or whatever it may be they would do it with us because our apps embedded in their phone and yeah 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 and then along comes a disruptor that's going to do the whole thing for nothing, uh, i.e. Revolut, Monzo and the like, who used it as a way to acquire customers. So the writing was on the wall for that business. So we had to evolve from a B2C travel money business into a B2B, so corporate customers, different type of entity completely, which we've pivoted successfully over the last few years. So that was a conscious decision rather by, than by accident. Um, and to make that final move in the eyes of the investment community away from our legacy to what we are now, the name change seemed the right thing to do because we're not fair effects anymore. We still have the brand, but that's not what we are anymore. But you still do travel money for, for retail. And, but also now um, the major focus of the business, I assume, is, is on this sort of corporate B2B transactions. Yes, but not FX is just a part of it. And so really we've done or are doing, I should say, um, two pivots from B2C to B2B. So we're vastly predominantly B2B now in terms of our customer base. And from individual products, be it international payments, a card product, a current account type product, to a platform. Um, and so more and more of our transactional revenues come from fees rather than just FX spreads. Mm -hmm. so 
FX is important because it's our legacy. And what we're trying to do for businesses is to make things more efficient for them. And whilst payment infrastructure in the UK is inefficient under the, the hood, and we're trying to make it more efficient, it's even worse when you're trying to move money abroad. So to the extent you can make that easier for businesses, there's an obvious revenue stream there. So you've built the platform and you have... Am I right it's never built, Nick. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always evolving. And I think what you have to think is, I tried to think of a decent metaphor for this, but, you know, if take the rail infrastructure in the UK, for instance... Um, you know, it's old, creaking. You can put whatever fancy schmancy train you want on it, but it will still go wrong because wrong type of rain, wrong type of leaves, wrong type of snow. And payment infrastructure is the same. You know, if you think about it, the big banks, etc., they own this infrastructure and they're not incentivized to modernize it. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're trying to build clever stuff on top of obsolete rails. Yeah. And you can also make an argument that part of the allure of, um, to some of cryptocurrencies is the fact that, you know, that was built on a blank sheet of paper and blockchain, yep. which underpins it, you know, distributed ledgers and all this type of stuff makes sense. And, but maybe it wouldn't be as attractive if the payment infrastructure that we're trying to work with with fiat currencies was better. But it isn't. So part of what we're doing, the reason I say it's never done is where possible connecting direct to payment networks or peeling the onion away such that we get to where it actually happens and can make it happen quicker and better, more efficient. But I guess that's a great opportunity for equals because that incumbent f f sort of wall will be very difficult for, for other people to come and, and involve themselves in, yes. in your offering. But as we knock down those barriers, people follow where we've trod, so we have to keep at it and hence why we'll keep investing and we'll keep going direct where we can um, because other people will, will come where we've opened up. But it is a, it's an ongoing battle because the payment infrastructure is, is not great around the world. It isn't. It's, you know, it's painful to move money around the world or just in the UK. Here uh, we are. And, and expensive. And expensive. You know, you think about we've had for quite a while now a system in the UK called Faster Payments, you know, which... We historically had backs, which was what, next day, but free. Chaps, which your bank might charge you 25 yeah. quid for, which is same day, but still could be a few hours. And faster payments is instant, 24-7, 365, but it's still constrained to £250,000 or less. Why? Can't think of a good reason. You know, there's been a... a uh, a project to have the limit raised to 20 million still hasn't happened. Why? Well, you know, you can conspiracy theory yes. all you like, but the yeah. banks own backs and they don't own faster payments yeah. and they keep holding your money. So um, it's against that sort of stuff that we're fighting. Here we are, and we are, unlike most who connect to things like faster payments via, could be modular or these, you know, uh, banking infrastructure type platforms, we're direct ourselves. And I think... You know, in, in allusion to what you mentioned earlier, part of the frustration for me is I still don't think the investment community yet understands the, the value of the platform that we've mm -hmm. built. Mm -hmm. When you've got um, fintech, non-listed businesses with crazy valuations, yep. you have less connections than we do. Yep. And I guess you are part of this new world of banking that is taking on 
the high street. And I guess your market isn't competing really with the likes of Revolut or Monza or Starling. It's actually competing with, with the high street. Yeah, I mean, the, the big KPI for those guys that you mentioned is number of customers. And the number of, you know, customers is the number of retail customers, yeah. you know, Revolut, I think, 27 million customers. Yeah. That's great. Good for them. Um, but that's not where we want to be. I mean, uh, most, especially in the UK, again, we expect banking to be free and financial services to be free and everything to be instant. And that's a tough gig. Businesses expect to pay for stuff. Um, and to the extent you can solve problems for them, which is where we are now, mm -hmm. Um, then they'll pay for that, and rightly so, because it's avoiding costs for them um, by doing so. And then there's obviously big talk about some of your competitors potentially or trying desperately to, to achieve a, a UK banking license. How does the regulation work for you? <laughs> some of our competitors, you mean one in particular? <laughs> well, it doesn't help when your accounts are late and um, qualified. And, and also you can't count your revenue. Anyway. <laughs> it's a bit fundamental, but um, I, listen... We could go for a banking license. We don't see that, you know, the route for them is basically being a bank, isn't it, really, in terms of, you know, all the various things that they do. Um, that's not what we need to do. But from memory, you have an e-money an e license. We have what's called an e-money license. Which is equivalent of a banking license well, digitally, or...? It was set up, um, whatever your views on Brexit, it was set up, you know, as, uh, when we were part of the European Union, and it's was designed to promote competition amongst banks, so a good thing. Um, and an e-money institution, um, compared to a bank, a bank is actually what's called a licensed deposit taker. And so a bank can take your money and relend it. Inherently risky, right? Mm -hmm. um, it can also pay you interest. Um, an e-money institution can take your money, can't relend it. It can't pay you interest. But it can do everything else a bank can do. So we can and do run a current account style product. So if you're a business that uses us, we have, let's say, more sophisticated methods of opening up quicker and uh, more sophisticated methods of opening up accounts. We can give you one account which covers all currencies, do it super quick. You could have, you know, I don't know, a million accounts if you wanted, mm -hmm. unlimited number. Any of us that have dealt with a bank, particularly as a corporate, well, no, it can take weeks to open up one account in one currency. With even, wets, e even if you manage to open one in the first place? Yeah. So um, it's that kind of speed of movement that gives us an edge over the high street banks, as, as you say, within the corporate world. And then what's the, the long-term ambition for, for equals? <laughs> um, going back to... <laughs> To my career history, you know, I, he I hesitate to say because, you know, what I thought we'd be doing five years ago is not what we're doing now because you have to adapt. And yep. this is a, um, an ever-changing world. And going back to that thing about big companies and investment banks, I want the business to stay nimble. But ultimately what we're, we're trying to do, and maybe the best uh, example of that I'll give you in a second, is build that kind of payments machine in the in the middle. Equals is the payments platform, it's the connections and all that type of stuff. And Equals, in effect, um, to the extent it does revenue directly with customers, that's us being a customer of ourselves, so what do I mean? Mm -hmm. So FairFX, the travel card, will be consuming, in effect, 
part of the platform from the central hub. Um, so we can either talk to customers directly through our own products, which are all powered from the central hub, or via affiliates, or via white labels, or um, someone brings their own license and we give them the tech, or we provide the license and the tech. You see there's very yep. many shades of doing the same thing. If that central uh, capability is there, um, and for us it is, and hence, well, you know, we're kind of, you know, modular, clear bank, I hesitate to say Rails Bank, they're having some, some mm -hmm. issues, but um, we have all of that and more. And Bank of England? <laughs> well, we have a Bank of England. Uh, we're not trying to be the Bank of yeah. England, but just to be clear. But we do have what's called a real-time gross settlement account at the Bank of England. So we are, in effect, a clearing bank, um, which is kind of cool, right? So um, we are settling with the Bank of England in real-time gross settlement, which um, is not a trivial thing to get. And how do you win new customers or more customers? Um Good question. And again, you know, we're talking about pivots. When you're B2C, you're doing what they call above-the-line marketing, TV ads, out-of-home posters, that type of malarkey, and a lot of Google pay-per-click to mm -hmm. drive people to your website, which is your shop window, and that's, that's how you get customers. B2B is different. Um, the marketing end of it is, rather than the driver, is the augmentation. So you need outbound sales, people making phone calls, going to conferences, go where customers congregate, whether that's online or in reality, as I say, um, trade conferences and trade fairs are great places to go, um, with additional uh, digital assets, good website that converts. Mm -hmm. So um, we, are, we have been bulking up on salespeople, um, and we've been adding salespeople we tend to think that it's uh, what we can offer for corporates varies by the sector or vertical that they're in. So we're adding salespeople that come from that vertical yep. rather than being yep. payments or financial yep. services salespeople um, because they know the problems that are peculiar to that vertical. So which verticals are you currently strong in? Well, it's probably best to name the ones that we're not. But um, it, historically, we've been good in film, TV production, um, all types of financial services on the solution side now. We've got CFDs, some gaming, gambling, fund administrators, that type of thing. Um, because the far end of what we do now, which I just alluded to there, um, solutions, is taking everything that I've just discussed. And let's not forget, which I haven't mentioned, that you know, unlike most uh, what are called competitors, we offer not just the ability to move money from an account to another account, but also cards, mm -hmm. so be they prepaid or debit. Um, so we are quite unique in having that platform that you can do payments and cards all in one place from one pot of money in any currency that you like. Um, so that really stands us out. So in solutions, what we're doing is taking that platform and offering highly bespoke um, capabilities, including could be, I don't know, let's say you don't want to release a payment unless 10 people have authorised it in a particular yeah. order in, or any two from eight in one section. We can do all of that and we can have it spun up really quickly. And if you want, as I mentioned earlier, unlimited number of I-bands, you can have that. So it's highly configured. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, part of the reason we built that was based on our own experience because most 
FX businesses, which is what we were principally at the time, um, your customers pay money into what's called a pooled account. So you have equals PLC, pay it to equals, um, and we'll send it where you need to send it. Give us your beneficiary details. Sounds simple. However, you could, I don't know, if you're doing 5,000 transactions in a day, you'll have 5,000 bits of money all coming into one account. It's quite confusing. You've got to work out who sent you the money before you show it as theirs. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's lost. Could have 10 people in a day all sending you 50 grand. They might all forget to put the transaction reference on. People do. I do. Um, how much easier would it be if those 5,000 customers each have their own account? and they're paying into their own account rather than into a pooled account. And that's why we built the capability that we've built, and that's principally what we sell to other corporates is it removes all your reconciliation problems mm -hmm. in one fell swoop. And then along the way, what have you learnt and what would you have done differently? Oh, my word. <laughs> Seek advice, I think, is the first. I think I, when I was in my 30s, 40s, you know, um, thought I knew everything. You don't. I remember uh, uh, back in the UBS days, the head of equities at that time had a chief of staff, which could mean many things, particularly yeah. topical at the minute. Yeah. Um, and um, the chief of staff was, I don't know, he must have been neck end of 60. I thought, you know, what's that, what's that old guy got to, out, to add to us thrusting 30, 40-year-old investment bankers that are conquering the world? And actually experience... And, and, you know, having seen it all before, because a lot of what we've seen over the last 20 years, we have seen before, mm -hmm. right? It's just uh, dressed up differently. Um, so seek experience, um, that counts for a lot. Wise heads in, in difficult times, don't panic, all those type of things. Um, so never be afraid um, to ask someone older who's seen yeah. it before. Also, um, don't be so arrogant as to think that you know everything because you don't and um over the last few years in particular you know it's i've enjoyed learning new stuff the workplace has changed a yeah. lot yeah. um all this type of stuff um i mean do you find it easy to find staff for your london office um not as easy as we once did funnily enough i think in the last 12 months to some extent yes because a lot of fintechs are um shedding staff yeah. and you know we're still only 300 headcount um, we are hiring, by the way. If there's any good salespeople or tech people out there, then um, <laughs> please uh, give me a buzz. Um, but we can retain that kind of... We're quite stable. We're a profitable fintech. Yeah. I'm uh, probably yeah. in a minority of one there yeah. um, that's growing. So we're quite an attractive place to work. And, you know, there's a good familial feel. Um, and we look after our people. So um, easier, but it's a tough market down here. And then, do you expect them in the office all the time, or are you more remote or flexible? I'm in the office all the time. Um, I prefer people to be in the office all the time. Uh, you know, uh, we've learnt over the years, haven't we, benefits of diversity and different types of thinking. It's hard to harness that on Zoom or Teams, whichever you prefer. No, we're, we're the same here. I mean, I think it's um, exactly right. So I try and get them in, but I'm not um, dogmatic about it. So, um, you know, the people may have perfectly good reasons not to certain teams. It's more important than others. I think your engineers in some ways might be more productive working from home three or four days a week yeah. or, you know, coming when it's needed to interact. So it varies a bit. Um, 
but the overall mantra is being the. Off- I was in the office every day during COVID. Yeah. If I'm honest, I was yeah. like, you know, the only person there. But I couldn't think. There's part of um, my head of dealing makes his team still wear a suit. Right? I don't um, enforce it, but his logic, and I to some extent agree with. To the extent you put that uniform on, yep. it gets you in the mindset of going to work and coming into an office flicks a switch. Right? With the best in the world, if you're at home. It's not always as easy because oh, I can't walk the dog or I'll do this or I'll go to the gym, I'll do that later. I don't think, you know, when COVID first hit, I was very impressed how we and actually the entire country adapted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, VPNs working from home, all the tech side of it was pretty seamless if you could buy a laptop, which of course, yeah. was short at the time. But I think especially in some teams, productivity starts to fall three or four months in. Because you just, it starts to become easier to do that other thing rather than do the work. And unless you're there being pushed or you've got your colleague there outperforming, you know what I mean? Healthy competition is no bad thing. So I want them in the office is the the honest answer. And then our current government gives us great fanfare about being a supporter of technology businesses and and young startups. Have you seen any any evidence of that? No. Uh, Neither have we particularly asked for it. Um, but I think, um, no, um, yeah, they're, they're seduced by, I think if you're a unicorn with fantastic imaginary numbers, then they're supportive of you, whereas I think they could be a bit more involved at a grassroots level. So on that note, do you think you, the business was listed a bit too early on the stock exchange? 100%, 100%. Knowing what we know now, um, the listing wasn't a, an outrageous success let's be honest so we ended up with the cost of being listed without really any of the benefits yeah. of it so uh, it's been a rocky journey um was very good to be listed in 2017 when we raised money to yeah. buy the banking platform or the current account platform that we bought um so it's been good and bad but the um uh, really ultimately the markets here really look at what is your EBITDA what's your profit yeah. You can talk to all your blue in the face about other stuff, but really that's what they look at, and I don't think that's the right way to look at some of these businesses. No, indeed. Indeed. I mean, it feels to me as if you're a digital business with an analog stock market rating, really. <laughs> I could say there's an element, and you know, I first saw it, you know, we, or I had to have the courage of my convictions to spend a decent chunk of money building what we've built and are continuing to build. The market doesn't reward you for that. Um, doesn't or doesn't really encourage it, yeah. And I think that's a mistake in terms of, especially in this sector. Let's not call it fintech. You know, it's it's payments. Payments is a hot space. We have assembled some really cool stuff, um, and it's not reflected in our valuation. I don't believe. Well, maybe in the words of Kevin Costner, "Build it, and they will come." <laughs> Yeah, well, that was some fancy guys from <laughs> who were dead baseball players, but hopefully a bit more tangible than that. But I, um, yeah, there's an element of that, um, but it's still, you know, you see it on the chat rooms and everything else. What's your profit? Yeah, and I get that. Yeah, of, of course. course I get that because you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, businesses valuations are supposed to be you know discounted cash flow, future dividends, Correct. really, yeah. an ultimate. Um, but we're, when you look at the valuations of business infrastructure or mm-hmm. payments infrastructure businesses, 
I remember back to, um, so do you probably, Earthport. Yeah. Right? Earthport was a stock market, woof, woof, um, because it made no profit. Had a valuation, what, 50 million on a good day. Yeah. And was bought by Visa for 250 million for its payments infrastructure. That was all it had, but the market undervalued it. And, um, you know, currency cloud wasn't worth whatever Visa paid for it, but that's the same thing. Um, so um, that's the frustration. I, you know, one one guesses sooner or later the market will will see this, and or the profits will just get us where yeah. we should be. But it's um, a little or, bit frustrating. Or someone comes and taps you on the shoulder and asks if the business is for sale. Yeah, yeah. And I think going back to your earlier question, you know, what what are the plans is the plan is carry on doing what we're doing. Um, um, it'll take care of itself. I'm not. Mm-hmm wedded to one thing when I'm not looking for an exit equally of the right you know I'm, I am here to generate shareholder value um, not least because I'm a shareholder myself yeah, um, so be that what it may what we've built and our building is is amazing I'm actually really enjoying you know the whole process at the time in terms of the work within the company and what we're doing um, less so sometimes when I look at the share price no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, as my regular listeners know, I like to close with three questions. So I'm going to take each one individually in. Your greatest inspiration or mentor? By the way, I should say, I, although Nick pre-sent me these, I didn't read them. <laughs> my inspiration, all my answers will probably sound corny, but it is my wife and family, if I'm honest. Um, so uh, I had three children from my first first marriage and I remarried and I've got two more now um, who um, Nick knows how old I am but they're 12 and 6 and my, my wife is fantastic and a massive support to me so um, a lot of what I do is for them and the other three yeah, that makes a lot of sense and then a book which has inspired <laughs> you I, I don't know what other people you know I'm not going to say I read some you know, how to be great at business or anything like that. I, I read quite a lot. Um, I like sort of, embarrassed to say it, Tom Clancy stuff or detective type yeah. stuff. I like doing, I do crosswords every morning on my way to, to work and when I Are go you a, home. a cryptic or a quick? Definitely cryptic. Do times on the way in, telegraph on the way home. To keep my brain, your brain's yeah. a muscle, right? You need to exercise it. So I don't think any one book has inspired yeah. me. I think you find inspiration from within. Yeah. Um, tap on your knowledge and what happens to you in your life. You know, you can't rely on a book to do it, I think. But but you are a reader nonetheless. Yeah, when I have time. Indeed. I'm too busy generating shareholder value, Nick. To Absolutely, to yeah, exactly. <laughs> As all good CEOs should be. <laughs> Allocation of capital and shareholder value. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. About. Only two things to worry about. <laughs> yeah, trivial. What piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career to follow in your footsteps? Um... It's got to be flexibility, you know. Um, don't think you know everything. Also, you know, what I find frustrating with a lot of people that work for me is I don't know what they see when they look in the mirror because it's not what everyone else sees. Yeah. So however hard it is, and I am one of the worst people at taking criticism, I'll freely admit it. At least I know that, right? Uh, you know, listen to what people are telling you. You know, what we've introduced in our company, which is good practices, you know, regular appraisals that drives, you know, remuneration and other stuff. You know, 
be receptive to people telling you what you're not good at. You can't be good at everything. I'm certainly not. Um, so flexibility to see, you know, what's around with you. Listen to people. Don't ignore people with more experience than you, you know, because you think you need to trample over them. I think it's that sort of stuff. And I guess because of the sector, you must attract quite a, you must have quite a, sort of a, a young average age of, of employees. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's almost a dichotomy there in terms of the legacy. I'm trying to find the right word that doesn't sound insulting, but the FX business mm-hmm. tends to attract one type of person, yep. you know, your dealers and your salespeople, you know, you know a bit more, actually more male dominated, um, you know, type of um, attitude and the platform is more fintechy, mm-hmm. cerebral, um, you know, engineers, we all know what they're like. Actually, that still tends to be largely male. I don't quite understand why, but, you know, we're trying to work on that. Um, so, yeah, you've got we've got two competing cultures within the company, but we try and meld it into one overall feeling. But, yes, we are largely attracting younger type people who are... Um, bit more woke than I am no such thing <laughs> um, Ian how can listeners get in touch with you um, relatively easily um, just do ian at equalsmoney.com it's easy perfect Ian thanks so much for your time it's been fun thank you Nick thanks for listening to a different perspective a Zeus podcast if you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts see you next time